Welcome to Lit Poetry, the podcast where we go on a journey of discovery, reading, analyzing, and discussing great poetry from around the world. Poetry is worth it because the reading and writing of poetry is a revolutionary act that has the potential to transform both the reader and our world. Welcome to the Lit Poetry Podcast Season 1. My name is James Laidler, Australian poet, writer and your host. In today's episode, we'll be pulling up our dunas, drifting off into a gentle slumber and dreaming of a world that could be. This is a strange land of sedate monsters, earthy relationships and the unfolding of slow, joyous time. Welcome to the imagination of Australian poet Nathan Kernow and his poem Epic. Now, Nathan has agreed to join us here on the Lit Poetry podcast today, so a few introductory words are in order. Nathan has been writing and performing poetry for over 20 years, winning numerous poetry awards. His words have been projected onto buildings, performed on stage, inscribed on park benches, turned into song and visual art, and published in beautiful books. His collections include No Other Life But This, The Ghost Poetry Project, Radar, the Right, Wrong Notes, and the Apocalypse Awards. He's taught creative writing at Federation University and continues to conduct workshops and speak at events about writing and the writing life. As a spoken word performer, he's played gigs across Australia and around the world. But before I introduce you to the poet himself, let's take a listen to the poem that will be at the centre of our discussion today. May I present to you the poem, Epic by Nathan Kernow. Epic by Nathan Kernow. There came upon the land a time of great rest. It's not the usual beginning, but hear me out. The prince finally accepted his arranged marriage, and the dragon flew back to the mountain. People were happy going about their lives. Some were rich, some were good at mending. If a stranger came knocking late one night, they were welcomed. That's all that happened. It's called peace. But little is written about it. The prince slowly fell in love with his wife. The dragon remained sleeping inside its cave. The smell of carving seasoned in its nostrils. It went on and on. Nobody lost their lives fighting battles that didn't make sense. Instead, there was a family with a pet pig. They bought it inside and sang its songs. It sat beside the fire, listening every night with a dumb, bacon grin on its face. One that suggested it liked harmonies. So they kept it, though it looked delicious. It's an epic tale full of loyalty and love that's ignored because it lacks events. But there's glory and joy, simple, ongoing joy, as in heaven which is mostly eventless. And if conflict stems from a fear of death, 
boring tales might somehow release us. Peaceful stories beginning here on earth that with the telling will come to pass. So welcome, Nathan, to the to the podcast. It's great having you as one of our guests. Um, and yeah, how are you going? Good. Thanks for having me, James. No worries. So Nathan, we might just uh, kick things off. We're just giving our audience a little bit of an insight into you as a as a poet and about what the trajectory of your poetic life has actually been, the challenges, the successes, the inspirations, the motivations, that type of thing. Yeah, over to you. Yeah. Um, I started off pretty, pretty young. Uh, when I say young, I was 24, um, and I had three kids under three, so I wanted to make a big splash, and I, uh, I want, had a lot of expectations about poetry and um, success, and I really wanted to be known as a writer. Uh, that was really important to me. I really wanted to make money for the kids. I don't know why I chose poetry, but... I thought I would be brazen and hardworking enough to succeed in doing that. Um, <laughs> looking back, it's uh, a crazy idea. Yeah, I had some early success there and I received some grants and got some opportunities that, uh, you know, really set me on the course of, of a writing life. Um, I received lots of recognition and awards and, you know, I've been really, really lucky. So now the kids are growing up and, and moving out and um, I'm still writing and there's my dog. I don't know if you can hear her. Um, yeah, so, you know, there have been challenges along with that. There's been a lot of shifting of the goalposts and um, those expectations really were so strong that I had to readjust those and that came with a lot of grief and, um, and a lot of that early recognition was great at the start and is what I needed mm. but I also had to negotiate that um, later on and it became a problem mm. um, so you know you, you win some big awards and, and you you wonder what it means and um, mm. and you start trying to write to win more and um, you know all of those traps all of those traps that a writer can get mm. stuck down I've, I've pretty much myself in all of them <laughs> yeah and so i imagine hopefully it's, um, i imagine it's quite a sort of rabbit warren to sort of head down as yeah a, as a writer yeah 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 so and it's a very isolated game so you are in your head a lot mm. um mm. so you know there are the traps of, of that and of waking the monsters which um, 
I think it's Harold Bloom says, you know, writers wake the monsters, and um, you do a fair bit of that as a as a writer. Yeah, and that's really interesting because, I, and there's always this tension I think in writing, and when you're thinking about the purpose of writing, sort of, you know, we get sucked into the vortex of our own identity and our egos and mm. all that sort of stuff, and then balancing that out with yeah. what. I think I imagine would be much more nobler purposes and orientations. So, can you talk a little bit about that tension? How you know your years of writing have been? Maybe I assume there've been a bit of a struggle between those tensions too. Yeah. Um, look, one of the big trends I think of the last few years is probably art therapy and writing um, the health and. Um, you know, for the health of individuals and communities and all of that. So I've never really been interested in that. I've, yeah, my ego has been wrapped up in it in a big way. And that's okay, I think. It probably produces some, some great stuff. I don't know. Um, but that's always, yeah, in my, my thing to balance and, and to negotiate. Um, yeah, I don't know what else I can say about it. You, you know, you'd have to have a pretty healthy ego if you if you went into poetry. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think you'd you, have to I be mad. But, but but what's really interesting, Nathan, is that um, you're also acknowledging and talking about poetry from a fairly humble and honest perspective about that. That has been a challenge too. So, I, I mean, that's mm. interesting. And and when do you think in when did that become a sort of pretty tangible an awareness in you? Look, that's a good question. I think it, it still is, James. It depends what day you catch me on. All oh, right, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a long, a long journey. You, you still, I think, grieve at times and you think, why am I doing this? I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, although, to be honest, those days are, are not what they used to be. Like, I, mm. I do sense I've broken through to a certain degree and, and I'm happy where I am writing um, with less expectation. So, look, it's not as bad as it used to be. And part of that, I think, is having some secure employment uh, on the side where I, I, I'm earning a wage for the family and um, it's not all kind of writing-driven. Yep. Um, that does mentally, you know, help. But yeah, so that's right. In, in the small population that we have in Australia, being a, a novelist or a writer is hard enough, but being a poet uh, mm. that can actually live mm. off the proceeds of poetry... Act on. Yeah. I don't really know of any poets who have really managed to, to do that. Well, there's no. probably a handful, perhaps, but yeah. It's and I think I think the recognition side of things too is, you know, I can recognise that I have I have done a lot of cool stuff, and um, I've been very very lucky. And you know, I I don't ask any more of that anymore. You know, I, I've found an audience. Um, and I've been able to receive a lot of privileges. Mm. So I think, you know, I I feel established and I feel like I, I'm, I'm happy where I am, finally. Yeah, good. Do you yeah. find that you've come to that sort of place in yourself? Does that allow you to... Has that changed your focus in poetry? Like, has it shifted the type mm. and mood of the poetry that you're writing now like how does your poetry that you write now differ from the poetry as a young man do you think like is there a, is there some yeah. sort of yeah I think it, there is it, it's certainly changed my practice um, I when I was starting out you, you know like if you want to succeed at anything you it has to be the last thing you think of 
when you go to sleep and the first thing you think of when you wake up. Like, you, you need to be devoted. Um, so, yeah, it's not that anymore. It's changed my practice. I don't have to write something every day. Uh, I can relax and, um, and not be afraid that the talent is going to dry up or that, you know, the, the next poem isn't going to come. I don't have to worry about that. I, I'm just a lot more comfortable knowing it'll come and um, I don't need to put that pressure on myself. Yeah. So it's changed my practice. I'm probably slower mm. than I used to be. Um, yeah, in terms of the type of poetry I'm putting out, I'm just writing whatever I enjoy writing. Mm. So, yeah, I'm not thinking about style or how it's going to cohesively fit in an end product down the track. I am just writing poem by poem for my own enjoyment. And that's the part of the process I love the most. You know, I, as good as it is to have a book out or to perform, I don't enjoy those things and all that comes with them as much as when I'm in the poem, writing it, crafting it, um, yeah, feeling that's, it. That's out. a very interesting so, thing, isn't it? And, and I can probably really relate to that. That, I, it, And it's mm. kind of the ironic thing about poet, poetry and writing and creative pursuits, and I was talking to an artist friend recently about this, that it the, the most fertile, joyous moment is that work of creation when something new is is on the edge of yeah. coming to life but then when you uh, sort of take a step back and you become aware of yourself that's that's when your ego kicks in that's when you start thinking about well what are other people going to think and what this and you, you know and, yeah. and, and just it, it kind of almost pollutes what you've done in yeah. a way it's a yeah. very strange dynamic I think at play it um, is and I love it it's um it is almost that place where you lose yourself it's it's that balance of of directing the poem and you know, using your brain and also kind of half shutting it off at the same time and just feeling and listening and mm. being open. Sitting in that balance in the middle of the construction is, it's it's a high. It's just wonderful. It's, it's the heart of, of creation, you know, and, mm. and you get to be in that zone and experience life and yourself mm. in another way yeah um, time slows down and yeah it's, mm. it's, it's an amazing it is amazing it's like a natural drug i suppose in, in a way. um yeah yeah it, it's the zone and mm. um the experience is just enticing mm. yeah yeah it's also very hard <laughs> yes. every time i'm in the middle of a poem i'm like kicking myself oh damn it why are these things so hard <laughs> Yeah, but I love that challenge, you know. And um, uh, yeah, I love, I love being in it still, even though I'm, I'm kind of cursing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, good, good. We might take a quick break here, and then we'll come back and we'll focus on the poem that we've listened to, and we'll try to unpack that a little bit. Okay. Welcome back to the Lit Poetry Podcast. We're talking here with Australian poet Nathan Kuno about his uh, life and work as a poet and in particular about the poem we listened to earlier called Epic and I suppose that's where it got to and what we want to talk about. So 
I think it's a really fascinating poem and um, you know, I approached Nathan to commission one of his poems and turn it into a, a sort of like a music video type of thing. So this video of the poem is live as, as we speak. And I would love to ask Nathan about what's that like when somebody approaches you and says, can I do something with one of your poems? And then maybe you could t- talk to us a little bit about what that process was like. And um, there was a certain, there was a couple of challenges in that process as well, which you might want to talk about. <laughs> well, firstly, it's, it's lovely that anyone's showing interest in, in the work. So um, it's very nice and you want an audience for the work. So it's, it's great. Also, there's some trepidation. Um, I've been involved in, you know, collaborations or things like this that that I wish I wasn't. And you don't want the work um, butchered, <laughs> um, so or, or you know, just used. Actually, it probably used more than anything. Used yeah. in the wrong way for the wrong yeah. purposes. Um, you want it to be genuine, uh, whatever that means. But. So, uh, you know, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this. We had a couple of um, drafts and and we got <laughs> there in the end, I think. Yeah, we did. Um, we had uh, some serious uh, hiccups along along the way. In fact, to give a bit of backstory to the audience. So originally when I, I received five poems from Nathan and then I isolated this particular poem as one, I thought, oh... Yeah, this really has a, a strong sort of motif that I can sort of sink my teeth into. And I, in my mind, I was really going, this is a real fairy tale sort of motif that's undergirding the poem. And I hadn't done anything like that before at Lit Poetry. And I approached my UK voiceover artist, who I go to for some things, and I gave him instructions to, to read it like you would read it to a very young kid in bed as a fairy tale to make them excited and that sort of thing, to give it that sort of element. And the version that I sent back to Nathan, I'm not sure what... I mean, you should be honest and tell us actually what was going on in your mind at that stage, like whether, <laughs> whether you actually did pitch me in like an apron with um, a, a butcher's cleaver, sort of <laughs> hacking away at your poem. No. Um, but no. Yeah. So Look, I, I, was, I was very honest with my, uh, my feedback and you were very gracious <laughs> in that uh, you, you, took that, um, you took that feedback. So, uh, I, look, I've been... I've had the endings of plays changed on me. I've had, you know, nothing is new to me. Like, um, and I know that you're learning too and and I have to learn actually that my voice and the way I read things is, is not the be all and end all, you know. So um, there's just some coming together that we needed to do and uh, and I think we did. You know, I it is a very accessible poem. It is. And uh, I think it's accessible to, to all ages. Um, and I can totally see how you went down the fairy tale thing because I mean that is what it's buying into, isn't it? I mean they're they're the tropes in the uh, yeah in yeah. the poem. But the- I, I do have this it's kind of interest in in what it is to present a poem genuinely and the kind of paradox in that and how to get out of the way of of the words and um, yes and which as is- a performer I think it's 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 really interesting how you let the words do their job and it's going back to ego too isn't it um yeah. because it yeah. obviously you're needed to deliver the words like you can't get out of the way of them completely because you're delivering them but yeah it's this strange balance it is in the, the second version look i read it myself but it's a really i, I know the times i've been really impressed with um 
poetry recital and that sort of thing is usually when when the poet seems to really in, inhabit the words. I think that's a really good way of, of putting it. They mm. become mm. so enmeshed and in the words. And it's not about their ego, not that they're throwing their personality and say, look at me to the audience. They are just in the words mm. and they're sort yeah. of like swimming in them and delighted and letting the words unfold across the across their consciousness and all that sort of stuff. And it's just, it's mesmerising. I think that's what yeah. I tried to bring to the second version. And, and, I could, and I started to read it. It was really good being challenged by you, actually. Um, to read it in that way and I think the, the the poem kind of sort of opened up like a flower to me and uh, and I could see other depths in there by taking on a, on a different mode and a different voice because the early version was very didactic it was very oh my god yeah. I mean I had a sleeping dragon there and it and when it was talking about carving season, I had a little cow that came out on the screen. It was it was crude, um, I think. Um, yeah. But I was I was playing up to that sort of uh, the Princess Bride sort of um, idea. I even had some snap, yeah. uh, some footage from that particular film um, in there. Might have a quick listen so the the audience can understand how bad the the, the first version was, um, and then we'll come back. Okay. Epic by Nathan Kerno. There came upon the land a time of great rest. It's not the usual beginning, but hear me out. The prince finally accepted his arranged marriage and the dragon flew back to the mountain. People were happy going about their lives. Some were rich, some were good at mending. If a stranger came knocking late one night, they were welcomed. That's all that happened. It's called peace, but little is written about it. The prince slowly fell in love with his wife. The dragon remained sleeping inside its cave, the smell of carving season in its nostrils. It went on and on. Nobody lost their lives fighting battles that didn't make sense. Instead, there was a family with a pet pig. They brought it inside and sang its songs. It sat beside the fire, listening every night with a dumb, vacant grin on its face. Anyway, we might um, just end that there because I don't want to go any, on any further. Nathan, just a little bit more about that particular poem. So I hope that was okay listening to, to that little uh, snippet. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> That's fine. I really like your idea about inhabiting the words. I, mm. That's exactly what it is. And... It's that when you're when you're writing it too, when you're in that zone we've been talking about. It's um, you do you inhabit the language and and what language can do. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I imagine that's with a lot of art, so painting and all sorts. When the artist mm. it loses themselves, it almost loses yeah. their own sense of self in the process because there's something yeah. universal that they're doing.
moving on about the poem itself, and hopefully uh, our audience can recall the uh, original version. I suppose you mentioned before that allowing the words to really to stand out. Now, of course, with lit poetry and the whole the whole sort of uh, philosophy or impulse behind this project has been, you know, that poetry is lit. So I've taken a probably a, a modern coined a modern phrase because my concern is is trying to bring poetry alive to a world that um, perhaps where the, the allure of poetry is, is um, has dropped off the side of a cliff for a lot of young people in particular, and I teach young people. And so to add elements to poems, to allow them to, I suppose, um, percolate in people um, but as an access point uh, with music. So, of course... I'm not mm. sure if that was the pro- part of the process that made you a little bit nervous because I was going to put music to it. I was going to. There's also a video, and it can become quite distracting to the words. Um, and and I think after talking to you, what I tried to do was really strip it, strip it right back, strip it everything back, so the words really did did feature. And, and yeah, um, I love it. I love what you've done. Mm. Mm. Um, so with the poem itself, Nathan. There's a couple of things that, that I want to talk to you about, um, and by all means, if you want to add your own thoughts, because you know, this is really interesting. Um, to me, the theme of rest becomes really apparent, and of sort of finding a, a sense of a, a peaceful sense of belonging in our world. Um, it's such a there's a real gentleness to the poem, a sense of surrender, and even strangely enough, perhaps this word compliance, which is often a negatively associated. Um, a connotated word uh, compliance like when when the when the, the prince you know sort of ex- accepts his ra- arranged marriage so so what, what was going on here what are your thoughts here I find this really fascinating and was there anything in particular that was lying at the heart of this sort of sentiment I'm seeming to be picking up on well this poem began with that first line uh, some poems you have a last line some poems you have an image or a metaphor that kick you off this was kicked off by an opening line that, that came to me when I was watching a movie with my kids and, and you know it was a fairy tale movie and there was that classic opening that came upon the land at time of great unrest and I just thought right there and then what if you switched that up and changed it to rest and um, and then I then I just had to follow that thought through and really explore that thought so I was kind of set on a course from that opening line and uh, yeah there is it's about peace and if you follow that line you say well what if all the stories the best stories out there the ones about peace have never been told uh, and perhaps they're more important than any of the others that, that stay with us you know about conflict and conquest and mm. uh, all these things that fuel drama so we're told and fuel story. So I, I just began really exploring that, and so yeah, yeah. of course I had to fill out the fairy tale tropes because that's yeah. what the first line suggested. Mm. I was really just set on a track, set on a course from that opening line. So I had to have a prince, I had to have a dragon, mm. um, I had to, you know, have rich people and poor people. Everyone's just happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, and that's fine. It was. That was great. It all kind of wrote itself pretty easily until about halfway. Yeah. And then and then you realise this poem is about nothing happening. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm stuck. <laughs> yeah. How much more can I write about nothing happening? <laughs> yeah, and there is a clear divide in the poem, I think. So it's really become something else. In in um, yeah, there's some real <laughs> philosophical musings, I think, um, towards the end, as well. Um, just... Yeah, the end was the worst part. <laughs> mm. So the end says, uh, a "Heaven, which is mostly eventless." Um, and, in, and if conflict stems from a fear of death, boring tales might somehow release us. Peaceful stories beginning here on Earth that with the telling will come to pass. So, mm. yeah, so can you take us through that that particular ending and where, where your mental space yeah. went to? Oh, that was rough. That was rough. Uh, it was like a month and a half, two months of just trying to nail out these last few lines that I just could not get right and it killed me James it was just yeah. always in my head it was an itch I could not scratch mm-hmm. so everything else had written itself pretty pretty well and relatively easily and then I got to that point and yeah that was the problem oh. <laughs> so, um, so new- how could I wrap it up so numerous drafts I imagine and, and experimenting with different so many different yeah. lines showing them to my partner who wasn't happy and I wasn't happy <laughs> I just wanted it over James <laughs> yeah so yeah, that's tough Nathan that's a really um, important point though because I think we probably have a lot of budding um, poets hopefully listening to the podcast and and it's a really important thing that they hear that the poetry is partly organic it's spontaneous but there are times where the art is also very much a craft and it's it's about uh, isn't it? It's, it's about like really doing the hard yards and str- struggling. And yeah. sometimes you can struggle over one single word, even. Um, yeah. And yeah, multiple renditions. So, so I actually think that's quite an inspiring thing that you went through that process, and after months you managed to get something that you. So, are you happy with the ending, or does it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I got there, and um, yeah, you do have to commit. To that pain and that agony because good mm. things can come from it I mm. think in terms of the idea at the end we got there in terms of it, it's, its expression and how it fits with the accessible rest of the poem I think it fits in so yeah I was very happy that I finally got there so mm. you know perhaps if we tell these boring peaceful stories where nothing happens perhaps they will actually come to pass perhaps they'll yeah. they'll make peace happen well, I think it might be a pretty um, important idea because, I mean, one of the things that I'm certainly aware of is the importance, the increasing importance of narrative in our world and stories, the type of stories, because stories actually build culture um, and, it, mm. and then that affects our outlook, our, our, our ethics, all sorts of things. Mm. You know, the foundation of a lot of things in our life are stories um you know so if you've got a society that is built on the tropes of superhero films and this sort of stuff and you know clear um sort of polarization between good and evil and that sort of stuff then then that those values and stuff will play out um in people's minds in the way they live their lives as well which i think is is very fascinating so so from that point of view i think it it is really important i I mean of, of course the stumbling block there, of course, is that you know you use the word boring tales, and for for many people that that is a challenge, um, you know. Um, but but to me, this is not a boring poem. But but maybe there's that perception that that things that are 
quiet and um, stripped back and not much happens. Mm. Are boring, but they're, they're not really. Yeah. Yeah, I like what you're saying, you know, um, and that's what poems can do. I think they can open up our imagination. They can awaken us to a potential of what we can be, of what our families, what our communities can be. Um, poetry does have that power. And, you know, that's where poetry comes from itself. It comes from that place of potential, mm. possibility. Mm. And um, that can that can take hold in our culture. So, um, like what you're saying, I agree. Well, look, just going back to the first part of the poem, I'm quite interested in just talking about a few things because to me it seems like, and I could be completely misreading that because I think that's part of the process of when you put something out there, which is quite interesting that as a poet that you might have had an intention, um, but then it gets uh, appropriated by other people and interpretation comes into play. So my interpretation... There was levels of it, I suppose, and certainly the first part of the poem I was thinking that there was levels of social, social commentary, um, that you were really casting your eyes over society and you were challenging stereotypical stories, archetypes, and all that sort of thing. Um, and then I was also wondering, you know, well, then when you're talking about the, the tropes of dragons and princes, you know, were you reaching for uh, metaphors them in a metaphorical way or, or symbols um have you got any thoughts in mm. that area or or even possibly you know is the dragon is it social commentary is it actually talking about your own self as a poet or something there was lots of questions i had about what uh, the dragon could symbolize and that type of thing yeah for me it was very much just i had to fulfill that for you know the the kind of genre or the, the fantasy theme that I was working with um, so to me the dragon was just a dragon um, that had to be in the poem mm. but um, I have heard people say you know it's the dragon represents nuclear holocaust um, it, you know and I guess it, it does represent a metaphorical conflict or threat or um, it can do that but um, for me writing it it was just very much a dragon the pig later on is just a pig um, but uh, and the prince is just yeah I guess a symbol of someone who is becoming happy uh, just with life continuing so yeah yeah to me it was just a functional kind of decision yep okay um, so how do you they feel are like, all in there yeah so how do you feel um, about so as a teacher I could take this poem into a classroom and I would be yeah. more than happy to, s- to swim in the, the idea of the dragon for a good 20 minutes unpacking that with kids yeah. and coming up with all the possibilities of what the dragon could be. Could it be nuclear yeah. war? Could it be, you know, and how do you make the dragon that has always got the potential to destroy the fabric of society into a, you know, how do you make it sleep? How do you, yeah. <laughs> you know, satiate its uh, hungry greed for, um, you know, uh, calves and that sort of thing? How do, you yeah. feel, how do you feel about that, that world of interpretation um, and, and poetry? You I, said... I, I think it's, it's fine. I mean, uh, you, can, you can do all that. Um, it's, it's like when you're at a gallery. You can't tell someone how close to stand to the portrait. You know, they can be right up to it nose first or they can be back uh, 
taking out the full the full range of the of the painting. You know, it's kind of the same with a poem. You can't tell someone how to interpret it or, or how deep to get into it for themselves or not. Um, there are no rules there, so people can do what they like. I think there's also I would have a warning against that though too mm. at the same time I think some poems are more open to that than others yeah. I think uh, Paul Tran the American poet talks about the interiority of a poem and how the structure how the form how the language use can direct us uh, to the interiority of the poem to the heart of the poem and I think if we just want to interpret things however we want, we can miss those clues, and we can miss those. Um, we can miss the heart of the poem. It just becomes about whatever we want it to be. And look, that's okay too. But there is, for some poems at least, an intention of the poet, mm. and we need to be open to that as well. We need to bring what we bring to a poem, but we also need to be open. To listening mm. it's that balance again that we were talking about earlier uh, I try and find that balance when writing and I hope readers will try and find that balance when reading I guess yeah I think that's a really really important point about the, the, the balance between the two um, and then and then sometimes poems or pieces of literature that have strong intentions um, I'll probably sort of uh, push back a little bit and say that well, you know, uh, you might be reading a, po- a poem that really lends itself to looking at it from a Marxist or a, a feminist perspective. Now, that was clearly, mm. you know, the, the, the original author would never intend it that way. But mm. by using those frameworks, you, it, it, there's an explosion of ideas and, and things you can read into a po- poem that wasn't weren't intended, but they still reflect the the, 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 the poet and their, their values lived in a certain historical moment in time. And yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. But it can go too far, can't it, I think, as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, it, that, those new frameworks can just, yeah, say, uh, you know, mm. bring a new life to the poem, bring a new energy, a new perspective to the poem. I agree. And look, and that's the, the, the exciting thing because we're, we're not all poets, but when you when you participate, when you go to an art gallery and look at a, at a painting or and you bring your own views, in some it's a weird thing, but you could argue that you become a co-creator with the artists themselves. You know, your interpretation yeah. is um, it's another adapted form of art, which is pretty exciting, and maybe that would be an interesting. Um, thought that people should hold in their hearts when they're, when they're doing this, this sort of stuff and it makes it yeah because it's one thing to write but we really should be consuming art as well you know it's a celebration and, and moving into other people's work and uh, embracing it where we can yeah look you know the whole author is dead thing um it can be a very empowering thing for a reader to to feel like you know they are a co-creator um and in in Look, probably in every sense they are, because without the reader, there is no work, right? There is, the poem is, needs the reader um, to read it. <laughs> yeah. And the reader needs for there to be a poem in the first place. So, yeah, yeah interesting and, and ideas. A, and an interesting thing too is that, that, a, that a poem or a piece of literature also reads the person as well. Like, because um, mm. uh, mm. everything is 
self-referenced in the end back to our own needs and wants and desires and yeah and, and it gives us an angle on ourselves I don't know if you've had that experience where you read a poem and then 10 years later and you don't really like it or dig it or, or get it that much um, and then 10 years later you come back to it as a different person and yep. and it really speaks to you you know you've had all these experiences you've had this these hurts and these wins and these losses and all of a sudden bam the poem just and you go how does that happen <laughs> oh i have um yeah i remember reading um notes from the underground from by dostoevsky and i hated it when i read it i read it in the book yes. club but, it, but the book has bloody haunted me my my life the whole life and yes there's something magnificent about it some insight yeah. into the human condition that's just like, i can't get past but yeah isn't it interesting, you know, some, some poems wait for us and, um, and need us to be in a certain place uh, or, or just, just open up in a completely different way. It's, yeah. yeah, it's kind of, kind of nice to think. Perhaps there's no bad poems out there. It's just, it all just requires a certain time, <laughs> certain experiences, a certain, certain kind of living, and then one day it'll all be good. <laughs> yes. Well, there are some bad poems out there that, that would do well to be redeemed in that way. <laughs> anyway, um, Nathan, it's been fantastic talking to you. We'll probably, um, we might sign off here. Um, I've actually got to take my young son to work in about five minutes. So. <laughs> um, but I, I, you're my second guest, and as with my first guest, I wanted to set a tradition. And the... The question I wanted to put to you is, uh, in your own words, if I asked you, why poetry? What would you say? I didn't really have a choice. Looking back, it, um, you know, I don't want to say it chose me, but look, it really did. <laughs> um, it's something about the potential of it that hooked me. That was the writer I, I had to be. Um, you know, with that Dickinson line, I dwell in possibility a fairer house than prose. To me, I, prose writing didn't cut it anymore. All of that possibility was in poetry. Mm. Like, the, if you wanted to be a real writer, which I wanted to be, to me, that could only happen in, in poetry. That's where the real possibility was. Um, it wasn't just interested in narrative was interested in that but it was interested in in the whole potential of words every word the richness of every single word and the combinations of those so that's why great oh, well it's wonderful being wonderful having you as a guest nathan um and maybe we'll talk sometime in the future um we'll uh finish with listening to the the poem one last time um, and we'll be back next week with another Lit Poetry Podcast. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks, James. Great to talk. Okay. I'll catch you later. Epic by Nathan Kernan. There came upon the land a time of great rest. It's not the usual beginning, but hear me out. The prince finally accepted his arranged marriage, and the dragon flew back to the mountain. 
people were happy going about their lives. Some were rich, some were good at mending. If a stranger came knocking late one night, they were welcomed. That's all that happened. It's called peace, but little is written about it. The prince slowly fell in love with his wife. The dragon remained sleeping inside its cave. The smell of carving seasoned in its nostrils. It went on and on. Nobody lost their lives fighting battles that didn't make sense. Instead, there was a family with a pet pig. They bought it inside and sang its songs. It sat beside the fire listening every night with a dumb bacon grin on its face. One that suggested it liked harmonies. So they kept it, though it looked delicious. It's an epic tale full of loyalty and love that's ignored because it lacks events. But there's glory and joy, simple, ongoing joy, as in heaven which is mostly eventless. And if conflict stems from a fear of death, boring tales might somehow release us. Peaceful stories beginning here on earth that with the telling will come to pass. You've been listening to the Lit Poetry Podcast, presented by James Laidler. For more podcasts, poetry videos, and other useful resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Thanks for listening.